All right. Well, I trust you are well fed and that you're not ready to take a nap, but you're ready to give yourselves to the worship of our God uh, together. Uh, by way of announcements, one, one new announcement I'll make mention of, and that is um, Mrs. Middleton's now working on a new church directory. So if there's any updates, email addresses, you can't change your birth date, okay? I, if you want to be younger, you're not going to change that. Uh, but if the email addresses, addresses, or whatever, uh, please let her know so that when the new directory comes out, everything is updated. So please keep that in mind. We're delighted to have uh, Jason Bradshaw back with us uh, this afternoon. He's been with us one other time, and apparently you, you were kind enough that he came back. And so we're thankful. And he's from uh, the Providence Baptist Church in Toledo, Ohio, uh, our, one of our sister churches and. Uh, most of you know his pastor, Pastor Charles, is a dear friend, a good friend of mine, and so we're delighted to have him here this afternoon and look forward to him opening the Word of God. Well, as we worship our God together, take your hymn books and turn to hymn number 76, hymn number 76, which is the 138th Psalm, which is what Mr. Middleton will be taking us through in a little bit. So let us together uh, sing praise to our God by the singing of hymn number 76. <clears throat> Let's stand as we sing together.
And let us pray and ask God to meet with us. Brother Wade, would you lead us in that prayer, please? Amen. You can be seated. I like the hymns that come right out of the Psalms, particularly how that hymn emphasized how mercy and truth shine in God's Word. And that's what we have here in this chapter again, we've noted many times how mercy and truth are, I call them the twin pillars of salvation, or in your versions, you might have loving kindness, uh, you might have uh, steadfast love, and uh, truth. Uh, These two uh, words, Hebrew words, are nouns. One is feminine, one is masculine. Uh, The Hebrew has uh, feminine and masculine nouns and verbs, uh, rather like Spanish does. So I'll let you guess which one of the two is masculine and which is feminine, loving kindness and truth. And then again, in verse 8, we will have that word hesed uh, again, uh, extolling God uh, for his mercy. In this psalm, Psalm of David, of course, he says, I will praise, I will sing, I will worship, all these things that he is uh, purposing to do there in verse 1 and 2. But notice the context. Notice where he's going to do this. And it says, before the gods. And the word gods there is the word Elohim, the, the plural of Eloha. And same word that in the beginning, God, Elohim, uh, created the heavens and the earth. And how do the translators know when to use small g and when to use capital G? It's often, the word Elohim is often used for uh, judges, kings, rulers, uh, men of that uh, stripe. And so uh, just keep in mind that Elohim, God, is what he is. He is God. That's not his name. His name is uh, Yahweh. And so David prays before, or praises before kings. Uh, his peers, of course, would be kings and, and princes. Reminds me that it's a very hard thing to praise God in front of your peers. Men, do you find that at work? <laughs> I do. And one very simple uh, way that we can begin to uh, turn this around. There's, there's such. <laughs> everybody wants to talk about the weather these days. So there is an area where you can praise God when you know the talk turns to something as simple as weather. Uh, we can praise God uh, before our peers. And then one other uh, little thing I wanted to uh, notice uh, about this psalm, and that is in verse eight, where he 
Ask God not to forsake the work of your hands. Or most of the versions, I consult eight different versions when I do this, and six of the eight use the plural for works there. And it reminded me that um, we've noticed in, uh, again, in many psalms, where the prayer or the song will start out personal. He's talking about me, I will uh, sing. Uh, Psalm 131 is a nice short one you could just flip over to and, and see what I'm talking about. My heart is not haughty, my eyes are not lofty, but then it ends with this note, let Israel hope in Yahweh from henceforth and forever. And I wonder if that's what we have here. He's praying uh, a personal prayer and rejoicing in God's mercy toward him, but then he asks God not to forsake the works of his hands. And I see in this uh, very messianic theme that Messiah and his congregation are one. What, what one says, uh, the other says. And we can interchange uh, those two things. Me, Messiah, or me, uh, his congregation. Okay, Psalm 138. Um, New American Standard today. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing your praises before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your mercy and your truth. For you have made your word great according to all your name. And many versions have above uh, all your name, your word above all your name. And the word, word, (laughs) is the same word that is often used in David's Psalm uh, 119. It's his oracles. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, Yahweh, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing of the ways of Yahweh, for great is the glory of Yahweh, for Yahweh is exalted. Yet he looks after the lowly, but he knows the haughty from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will reach out with your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. Yahweh will accomplish what concerns me. Your faithfulness, Yahweh, is everlasting. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Now before Jason comes to open the Word of God, let's take our Trinity hymn books Turning to 552, 552, O Jesus, I have promised to serve Thee to the end. May we be found as faithful servants of God all of our days. 552. Stay together as we sing.
Please turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 26. And while you're turning there, once again, greetings from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, We pray for you. It's a blessing to be here. And thank you for having me. So James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, God's word tells us this. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your word. Please guide me into correct interpretation. And please open our hearts and minds to understand your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, there have been many, many false prophets, men that have viciously attacked the word of God. In the early church, men such as Arius, Pelagius, Nestorius, Apollinarius, Sibelius, a lot of us's. But false prophets have not subsided. They're prevalent today, and their attacks come in various ways. Some attacks are very obvious. For example, I was at the bus stop, and someone said, I believe that Jesus is God. Amen. He said, I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day. Amen. But by the end of our conversation, he began to try to convince me that Jesus is merely a God, a created being, which, of course, is heresy. I talked to another man who said he believed in justification by faith alone. By the end of our conversation, he began to try to convince me that we're justified by faith plus water baptism, essentially adding water baptism to justification which, again, is heresy. So as these attacks come, 
and no doubt they'll continue to come, whether they're attacks on the deity of Christ, whether they're attacks on the Trinity, justification by faith alone, or ideas like critical race theory, intersectionality, this idea of a hundred different genders. You need to know this. You need not be afraid. You need not worry. You say, why is that? It's because we have the word of the living God, which has been preserved. It's without contradiction. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. Yes, fulfilled prophecies, science, archaeology are consistent with the word of God. But if you believe God's word is truth, it's ultimately because God the Spirit has illumined your mind. He's given you eyes to see. That's why you believe. But that being said, 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter, referring to Paul's letters, and by the way, he refers to them as Scripture, the Word of God. He says, in them there are some things that are hard to understand, in which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. Now, remember, in one sense, the Bible, the Word of God, is so simple, a child can pick up this book, read this book, and come to a knowledge of the truth, come to believe the gospel. But in another sense, the Bible is so complex, the greatest minds will plumb the depths of God's word and never fully arrive. But again, in this book, there are some things in which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. Now, why do I say this? Well, I say this because the passage we're going to look at today, specifically James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 is a passage in which many, many, many people have twisted to their own destruction. In fact, I would argue that James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, primarily verse 24, is one of the most distorted texts in all of Scripture, probably right behind, judge not lest you be judged. In fact, I would argue that a distortion of James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, primarily verse 24, is essentially the battle cry of works righteousness. It is the battle cry of those who would attack the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So as we look at this passage, I have three motives. One, that God would be glorified. Two, your personal edification. And three, I'd like you to be able to come to this passage and not panic but be able to harmonize this with the rest of Scripture, and if possible, maybe even be able to explain this passage to someone who would ask questions. Although no pressure, there's a lot that I can't explain. So with that being said, I'd like to start off by looking at verse 24. And the reason is because I need to spend additional time on this verse, and I don't want to interrupt the flow of the passage. So James chapter 2, verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, wait a second. Did we just read that right? You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, we know that we are saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. 
In fact, there's many passages that would support this. Romans 3, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. By works of the law, no man will be justified. Ephesians 2, By grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. John 3, Acts 16, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Yet when we come to verse 24, it seems to be saying the exact opposite. So how do we harmonize James 2.24 with the rest of Scripture? Well, words, whether they're Greek or whether they're English, they have what's called a semantic range. Words have multiple meanings. Now how do we determine the meaning of a word? By the context. By the context. For example, if I were to say to Cliff, Cliff, I need you to be a buddy. Would you please take the Diet Coke outside and put it in my trunk? Now, is Cliff going to say, which tree trunk would you like me to put the Diet Coke in? B, is Cliff going to say, is there really a live elephant outside and you want me to put Diet Coke in its trunk? Is that animal cruelty? Or C, is Cliff going to take the Diet Coke outside and put it in the trunk of my car? What's Cliff going to do? C, how do we know that? By the context, right? By the context. Now, if we were at the Toledo Zoo and I said, Cliff, I just saw an elephant pick up hay with its trunk, Cliff would probably not be thinking, wow, the elephant got a car and used the trunk of the car to pick up hay, right? Again, we know this by the context. Now, why do I say this? I say this because there's a word in verse 24. The word is justified. Justified. Now, the word justified has multiple meanings. The way the, the Apostle Paul primarily uses the word justified is to be declared righteous before God. And by the way, that's the moment you're forgiven of all of your sins. But there's another meaning to the word justified. And that is vindicated, demonstrated to be true. I'll give you another example. This is a ridiculous example, but let's, let's suppose I were to say to you, everybody stay put. I just looked outside, and I saw a bear and a few lions and a few tigers. Now, you're probably going to be thinking, okay, Jason didn't really see bears and lions and tigers outside. He's obviously joking. And I'm like, no, I'm not joking. I looked outside. I saw a live bear, a real bear, real lion, real tiger, they look hungry. If you go out there, they're going to eat you. Well, now you're like, Jason, you're lying. You're a liar. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not lying. A minute later, some zookeepers and police officers enter the building. Everybody stay put. There's been a breakout at the Toledo Zoo. We got a bunch of wild animals that have escaped. Yes, outside we got lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, right? Well, now you're thinking, Jason is not lying. Jason was telling the truth. Jason has been justified. There's that word. Justified. Vindicated. 
what Jason said was demonstrated to be true. You see? So as we look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, you need to determine what does James, who by the way is not the Apostle Paul, what does James mean by the word justified? Does he mean declared righteous before God and forgiven of all of your sins? Or does James mean justified, vindicated, demonstrated to be true? So with that in mind, let's begin by looking at verse 14. And by the way, this is not a sermon merely to harmonize James 2.24 with the rest of Scripture. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 is God's word written for you. So James chapter 2, verse 14. says, what, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him, or the faith? Can that faith save him? What faith is James referring to? Well, he says... If someone says, keyword, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works. So James is making a distinction between genuine saving faith and a mere profession. Someone is saying, I believe in Jesus, but there's no works, no fruit, no evidence whatsoever. So genuine saving faith versus a mere profession or intellectual assent. And what I mean by intellectual assent is someone who would agree with the facts of the gospel, but they're not entrusting themselves to Jesus as evidenced by the lack of fruit or works in their life. Verse 15, James gives an illustration. He says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? So for someone to say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to obey Jesus. I mean, I will obey Jesus, but just as long as it doesn't cramp my lifestyle. Because the moment it begins to cramp my lifestyle, I'm going my way. For someone to say that, it would be like this. Mr. Bachmeyer. Mr. Bachmeyer walks into the building. We say, Brother, how are you? And Mr. Bachmeyer says, Not good. I've been lost in the woods for the last two weeks. I'm freezing cold. As you can see, I don't have a jacket. I'm starving. I haven't had a meal in two weeks. So we say to Mr. Bachmeyer, Brother, be warm. We pray you get a jacket. Be filled. We pray you get a meal. But we don't even consider for one second maybe the means by which God provides Mr. Bachmeyer the jacket and the meal is us. Instead, we just hope you get a jacket, brother. We just hope you get a meal while not providing the jacket and the meal. Now, you're probably thinking, that's impossible. If our brother was freezing cold, of course we'd give him a jacket. If he was starving, of course we'd give him a meal. But that is what it's like to say, I believe Jesus is Lord while refusing to submit to his lordship. Which is why in verse 17 it says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. 
Dead, not alive. This is a faith that cannot save. Verse 18. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now the grammar in verse 18 is very, very difficult. But here's what's going on. James introduces a hypothetical objector. And this hypothetical objector says, you have faith, I have works. You see what's going on? He's trying to separate faith and works. Now remember, faith and works are distinct, yes, but inseparable. If you have genuine saving faith in Jesus, works or fruit will flow out of the regenerated heart. But this person's trying to say, you can have genuine saving faith without any works whatsoever. You can have works without faith. So James gives a hypothetical response. He says, okay, you think you can have genuine saving faith without any works whatsoever. Okay. Show me your faith apart from your works. Go ahead. Show me your faith apart from your works. And of course, it's impossible to display your faith apart from works. This is why James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Now, let's suppose this hypothetical objector were to say, okay, you want to see my faith apart from my works? No problem. I believe God is one. I subscribe to the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord God, the Lord God is one. In fact, I subscribe to a number of Orthodox Christian creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. I subscribe to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. There's your proof. Now that's good. You believe God is one? Good. You believe in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith? That is good. But here's the problem. Look at verse 19. It says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now the demons know that God is one. The demons know the truth of who God is. But the demons aren't entrusting themselves to Jesus. The demons aren't going to heaven. So are you saying your best proof that you have genuine saving faith is but like the demons? See the problem? Which is why in verse 20, James says, But are you willing to recognize, foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? James is reemphasizing the main point of the passage. Faith without works is useless. Faith without works is dead. Verse 21, James uses Abraham as an example. He says, was not Abraham our father justified, there's that word, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now, what does James mean by the word justified? Consider the context. Now let's go back to Genesis. 
When was Abraham justified in the sense of being declared righteous before God and forgiven of all of his sins? Was it Genesis 15 where it says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Or was it 30 to 40 years later in Genesis 22 when Abraham offered up Isaac on the altar? When was Abraham justified in the sense of being declared righteous before God. And of course it was Genesis 15. In fact, James quotes it in verse 23. He says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So we know that James does not mean justified in the sense of being declared righteous before God. But what James means is vindicated, demonstrated to be true. Was not Abraham our father justified, vindicated by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Abraham's faith was demonstrated to be true when he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice on the altar. You see? Verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works. Or faith was active along with his works. So think of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac as a sacrifice on the altar. By faith, Abraham obeyed. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham believed that God was more than capable of raising Isaac from the grave had the angel of the Lord not intervened. So it was an act of faith that Abraham obeyed God by offering Isaac up up as a sacrifice on the altar. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or completed. It was brought to maturity. It was essentially fully proven which is why verse 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now we come to verse 24. And this is the passage that has been most distorted by so many people. But in light of the context, verse 24 is no longer a problem. In fact, James' use of the word justified makes sense. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see that a man is vindicated by works and not by a mere profession. A man's faith is demonstrated to be true by works and not by mere intellectual assent, merely agreeing with the facts of the gospel. Now, Let's suppose someone were to say, Jason, you used Abraham as an example. I mean, this is Father Abraham, the patriarch. Of all people that would bear much fruit or much works, it's got to be Abraham. But for the rest of us average Joes, just subscribing to A mere confession or creed should be all the fruit we need, right? That's all the proof. Wrong. 
Because now, James is going to use Rahab as an example. Rahab. So we've got Father Abraham, the patriarch, highly esteemed. And we've got Rahab, Gentile prostitute. Yet, look at verse 25. It says, in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Remember back in Joshua chapter 2? The king of Jericho was looking to capture the spies that were sent out to view Canaan. And Rahab, of all people, came to believe that Yahweh is the one true God. So what did she do? She hid the spies. Now you say, how can we compare Rahab hiding the spies to Abraham offering up Isaac, the son of the promise, as a sacrifice? Well, let me ask you this. What would happen to Rahab if she was caught hiding the spies? She would be put to death. So like Abraham, Rahab, by faith, hid the spies. By faith, Rahab risked her life. It was an act of faith that Rahab hid the spies, risking her life. Which is why, in verse 25, it says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified or vindicated by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab's faith was demonstrated to be true when she hid the spies, risking her life. You see? You see the flow of the passage? Now we come to verse 26. James re-emphasizes the main point of the passage for the final time. He says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What happens when you separate the spirit from the body? What do you have? A corpse. A corpse. So we have genuine saving faith versus a useless faith versus a dead faith versus a corpse that cannot save. You see? So in closing, I have a few different points. The first point is we have to ask ourselves, who is this person that James is referring to? This person that professes faith in Christ but has no works, no fruit, and essentially has a dead faith. What does this person look like? Well, let me tell you what this person does not look like. Suppose you are this person. You battle sin. You hate your sin. And sometimes you fall into sin. Sometimes you fall hard into sin. But you get back up confessing your sin, forsaking your sin. You think to yourself, I wish my Bible reading was better. I wish my prayer life was better. And there's besetting sin in your life that you can't, you're not experiencing the victory you'd like over it. But you continue in the faith. You come on the Lord's day to receive. You're content in the ordinary means of grace. The preaching of the word, corporate prayer, the Lord's table, baptism. But most importantly, you are resting in Jesus Christ, who is your righteousness. Let me say this. I don't know your heart 
Only God does. But if I'm describing you accurately, I don't believe that you're the person James is referring to when he says dead faith. Now for, for the mommies here, could apply to grandmas too. You say, what do you know about being a mommy? Well, I had my nieces stay the night, and I thought to myself, there's no possible way we could do this two nights in a row. I mean, I love them, but it was like full throttle, right? It was like ice cream, movies, games, candy. And it just, it just repeats itself because I'm the uncle and I can't say no. Ice cream, movies, games, candy. Finally, two of the three fall asleep, and it's like, Caroline, sweetie, no, we can't play house because it's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's like, all right, give me the doll, give me the brush. Okay, sweetie, you know. Let's just say it was difficult to pray. It was difficult to read my Bible. But for some of you mommies and grandmas at times, it's like this is 24-7. You think to yourself, I wish I had more patience. I wish I had more self-control. But you continue to battle your sin. You think, I wish I could serve in various ways. But your priorities are right because you're raising up your children in the way they should go, in the Lord. You're content in the ordinary means of grace, and you are resting in Jesus Christ, who is your righteousness. I don't think that James is referring to you, if I'm describing you accurately, as someone with dead faith. I think of dads. I've had dads come up to me and say, I wish I could go evangelizing with the group at the bus stop. And I'm thinking to myself, the reason you're not going evangelizing with the group at the bus stop is because you're working very hard to provide for your family. You love your wife. You love your children. And you battle your sin and you hate your sin. You're content in the ordinary means of grace. And you're resting in Jesus Christ, who is your righteousness. Again, if I'm describing you accurately, I don't think James is referring to you as a person with dead faith. So then, of course, it begs the question, who is James referring to? Who is this person who professes to know Christ, but has no works and essentially has a dead faith? What does this person look like? And that would be this guy. It's the guy who says, I believe in Jesus but his heart is far from the Lord. You see, deep down within, he loves his sin. He's living in sin. And his lifestyle reflects rebellion against God. You see, the reason there's no fruit or works is because of a heart issue. You see, when God saves a person, he causes that person to be born again. He takes out the heart of stone that loves sin and is living in sin, and he replaces it with the heart of flesh. And this new heart comes with new desires, where you'll begin to love the things that God loves, and you'll begin to hate your sin. So if deep down you're thinking, I am someone with dead faith, what do you do? Well, let me tell you what not to do. This is not clean your life up to get saved. And by the way, we are talking about salvation here. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, is not an exhortation for you to work harder. 
We're talking about genuine saving faith versus dead faith. True conversion versus false conversion. So what do you do? Think about your sin. Think about all your sins against a holy God, whether it be lying, stealing, evil thoughts, lust, gossip, covetousness. And think about what we deserve. God is a holy, righteous, just God. Therefore, he must punish sin. God cannot sweep sin under the rug. And this is why a loving God would send someone to hell for all of eternity. It's what we all deserve. All of us. But now think of the love of God. For God demonstrated his love toward us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God the Father sent a son to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Truly God, truly man, and without sin. Jesus lived the perfect, sinless, righteous life that all of us have failed to live. He perfectly fulfilled the law, and he stepped in our place on the cross as a substitute where he suffered a horrible, bloody death to pay the penalty for those who put their trust in him. Jesus took the punishment for those who put their trust in him. He was buried. He rose on the third day, defeating death. He's risen indeed. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he's ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will return. But what must you do to be saved? Repent. Turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. The moment, the second, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ genuinely, all your sins, past, present, and future, are completely blotted out. Forgiven. And the perfect, sinless, righteous life that Jesus lived, that perfect righteousness is credited or imputed to your account. So when God looks at you, instead of seeing thousands and thousands of sins, God will look at you as if you lived the perfect, sinless, righteous life of Jesus. You'll be clothed in his righteousness. Again, forgiven of all of your sins, adopted as a child of God. And you can have peace because your salvation doesn't rest on your performance. It rests on the finished work of Jesus, who is our righteousness. There's no better news than salvation by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, his perfect sinless life, his death on the cross, the fact that he rose from the grave defeating death, Praise be to our King and Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, are you justified by your works? In that context, I'm asking you, does... Your life vindicate your faith. And that's the challenge that each one of us ought to honestly answer before our God 
In closing, let's take our hymns of grace, hymns of grace, and turn to hymn 421. Hymn 421. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Does my life vindicate my faith in Jesus Christ? 421. Stand together as we sing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us this day. Thank You for Your great wisdom that has set this day aside that we might worship You as Your people. And how we pray that the Word of God would truly have an effect upon our lives. May we live as the children of God. May we live as those who are Your treasured possessions. Help us throughout this week. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.